Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to episode 88 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. We are live from the Cockpit Theatre in London. Hello, I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago, I gave up my life's dream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician, Paul Weller. This podcast, heck, in fact, this entire live show here today exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. In this episode, recorded in front of you, a live audience, let's test it, a live audience, yes. Oh, there we are, Still with us. Uh, my guest is the legendary broadcaster, TV presenter, journalist, A&R man, promoter, and DJ. Heck, is there nothing he cannot do? Gary Crowley. Please welcome Gary Crowley. So Hello. Excited. So weird to be um, to be the one being interviewed. This is nice, isn't it? This used to be my local theatre as a kid, you know, when I had dreams of being um, the new Ray Winston or um, the old Phil Daniels. This was the place that I used to come on a Monday evening. So, Like a little youth thing acting. Yeah, thing. yeah. They, used, they, used to, they used to have a Monday evening teenage drama class. So yeah, this would have been about 1974, 1975. I'm trying to remember the, um, the actual plays that we did. I'm sure we did one about football hooligans called Zigazaga or something like that. I don't know if anybody remembers that. <laughs> but um, I, of course, was not one of the football hooligans. Yeah, so, so a lot of memories. And it's funny because my sister's here today and I was talking to her. There used to be, I'm you know, not sure if there, if there still is, but there used to be a sort of old school phone box in the reception. And we didn't have a phone at home. We lived on the estate behind this actual theatre, this and Green Estate. We didn't have a phone until I joined Capital Radio. Capital Radio insisted when I joined in 1982. So Gary, you've got to get a phone. I said, yeah, my dad, he's just not going to have it. Um, we were badgering um, my dad to get a phone. And I'm not having a phone in here. I don't want people ringing up and know my business and I said dad capital have said I've got to have a phone and um and then then I sort of left the pause I said oh by the way they're prepared to pay for it well all right then okay <laughs> and of course once we got that phone could we get him off it Sue? I mean he was on it 24 in fact I remember when we first got it. Do you remember Cat Weasel when he used to hold the phone the wrong way up? That's what it was like at the beginning. And then he got the hang of it and then you couldn't get him off it. I love the fact I've not even asked the question. I'm We're sorry. Already. We're already five minutes in. And I haven't even had a sheer look of panic in my eyes. I'm like, how the heck are we going to fit all this in, Christ? Um, hey, look, we're going to dig into your love of the jam as a teenager. We're going to dig into the creation of your own fanzine. And you mentioned the radio. Obviously, this incredible radio career over the past, what, 40 years, radio and TV career. Um, and interviewing some of the biggest music names in the business. We're talking Bowie, Elton John, Chrissy Hind, Oasis, Blur, people like that. So I'm hoping I'll pick up some tips from this guy as well. Oh, it's like a be masterclass. Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> it's like a masterclass for me as well. Right, so let's get into it. How did you first discover the music of the jam? Well, so rewind and go back to 1975, 1976. I mean, I got the music bug in a big, big way. I mean, my mum and dad 
split up when we were kids. And uh, I mean, I've thought a lot about this recently. I think music became my refuge in a way, really. You know, discovered the Beatles in about 1975, watching an episode of All You Need Is Love, which was entirely devoted to them. And then everything for me became about the Beatles and buying up the records and secondhand shops. And through getting into the Beatles, that kind of sort of took me on a bit of a journey. You know, you start listening to the Rolling Stones and the Kinks and the Who. That also sort of took me into the worlds of youth cults as well. My dad was a teddy boy, claimed to be a teddy boy, bald-headed teddy boy. But um, my aunt and uncle, Dave and Christine, were very, very cool mods as well. So prior to punk happening, they would come over to the flat. I would almost kind of sort of interview them. I just love talking about music, talking about youth cults. So I think in a way, Dan, I was subconsciously waiting for something like punk to happen. Was buying the music papers. I mean, like everybody else, and I can remember seeing the Pistols on the Today programme, the Bill Grundy interview. And then I noticed this band, The Jam, you know, wearing suits or, you know, being reviewed. And there was one interview in particular, which um, the band did with the famous Penny Smith cover. I think it was their first enemy front cover uh, where they're on Oxford Street and the three of them and they've got the uh, the suits on. I can remember reading that interview and Paul name checking the Beatles and just thinking, oh, he likes the Beatles as well. And, you know, they were talking about Motown, the love of Motown. And yeah, I mean, it just quickly dawned on me that, that you know, this was the band for me. You know? I saw this lovely quote where you said, the groups, the records, the clothes, the attitude. We're talking about punk. Um, I lapped it up. So take us back there to that time. What, were you a punk? Did you? I mean, in my head, when I think about punks, I think of the Mohican and all that. But that came later, right? That yes. That's really what it was all about. I was certainly not a punk, um, you know, with a Mohican I or think anything. I the guy from The Young Ones, like Vivian from The Young yes, Ones. Yes, yeah. Right? That's that, not it at all. That, that certainly wasn't me. I mean, um, well, one, you know, we literally had sort of a couple of openings to kind of rub together. So, it, And that was the great thing about it, in a way, really, was that, you know, you could sort of put your own take on it, that DIY ethic, you know, not only about the music, but about the clothes as well. And that was a great thing about the jam was that, you know, you could attain that look, that early look, you know, when we think about those suits. Um, well, yeah, we could all get a Burton suit, right? Well, exactly. <laughs> I mean, all I had though was um, was my school uniform. So the school uniform became, in my eyes, my jam suit. I mean, it literally looked like a Norman Wisdom ill-fitting, but I thought I looked the part. So, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, subconsciously, you know, before hearing this word punk and, and noticing that there was this sort of plethora of bands coming along I think I was kind of waiting for it and the great thing about it as well Dan was that um, I wanted to get involved in some way I mean I don't know whether it's the same for you guys but I was that guy in the school playground who had the transistor radio pressed to his ear on a Tuesday lunchtime counting down writing down who was going up and who was going down the chart and if there was a, a memorable performance on top of the pops or the old grey whistle test or supersonic I'd be running into school to sort of talk about oh did you see so and so and so and so last night so I think I was kind of subconsciously waiting for it. And then after seeing them for the first time at Batsy Town Hall with a, a group of pals, it was my first concert. I mean, I vividly remember sitting on that bus. We had to get two buses back to where we lived, you know, this in Green Estate, talking about how can we get involved? How can we get involved? Well, you know, we tried having a school band um, a couple of years previously, one guitar and there was about 12 members. That never happened. <laughs> but the fanzine thing seemed like the way to go because people were starting fanzines. Was this a school? magazine that already existed that you then took over? There was a school copying machine there as well, which we were allowed to use. We had a very, very cool English teacher, a lovely fella called um, Dave Meaden. In actual fact, I saw him for the first time a couple of weeks ago. I did something, an event over in Twickenham with Mick Talbot and Debsy Wicks from Dolly Mixture and my English teacher, who I hadn't seen since 1978 when I left, was there, which was, I mean, even thinking about that now, I mean, it was quite emotional, actually. Yeah. And he was a lovely, lovely fella, really, really supportive. I mean, our school actually thinking about it was a bit of a, um, a kind of fame academy because who else went there? Courtney Pine went there and Danny St. Jules, the actor, the dancer, Steve Walsh, the DJ, Phil Daniels went to our school as well. So it was kind of in the DNA, really. It was that thing of wanting to kind of get involved. And that was the great thing, I, you know, I thought for me as a 15 year old music mad kid, yeah. you know, that was a great thing about And punk. I guess a fanzine is like the equivalent now of a blog, right? So this is, and but the difference being not only do you have to write stuff, but presumably you're having to take photos, stick them in, put all this together and then photocopy and staple it all up. I mean, this sounds like a hell of a lot of effort for a 15 year old kid. Well, there was a group of us, Dan. I mean, there right. wasn't, well, wasn't just me. Yes, yes. There was an editorial team. I mean, we had um, a poet called Dave Durrell because 
course, you know, John Cooper Clark, we were all in in love with as well. And um, a lovely fella called Chris Clun, who actually gone on to become a very, very respected and, and, and successful photographer. My mate, Carl Eldridge, Mark Beach was kind of part of that original crew, the Walton brothers as well. So these are the guys that we went to those initial concerts with. Everybody kind of sort of chipped in, but I was the editor really. Right. So um, yeah, so, making so the decisions. We'll come back to the live performance of the jam because I really want to dig into that first gig. But in terms of the fanzine, what happens next is incredible. And actually not that far from here, the phone call that you make. Yes. Well, I mean, you know, so I saw the band and, and we'll talk about that in a moment. And then literally we got that bus ride home that night. And the question was, how can we get involved? What can we do? So we decided to um, to start the fanzine. And I'd seen a fact file in, in Melody Maker. It actually had John Weller's contact number on there. Maybury 64717, I think I was it was, Tufty. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's funny how things stay with you. I mean, you didn't have to be Sherlock Holmes to sort of think, well, hold on a minute. John Well has been mentioned in, in some of the interviews, so he manages them. At least if I ring up, I'm going to speak to him. We had this phone box literally right outside our school. It's still there, actually. It kind of became my office at, <laughs> at, at lunchtime, Stan. I'd be in there with a stack of two peas, as it was then, or ten peas for a longer conversation. If we got through to somebody, I would ring around the record companies and the PR people, try and blag interviews and tickets and records. I mean, as I said, I think I was literally... You know, living on the very generous pocket money that our auntie, Olive, bless her, would sort of give us. You know, getting free tickets and, and, and records was kind of important in a way, really. I, I got through to some some amazing people. I mean, a, a few people that I'm still in contact with now. I mean, there's a lovely lady called um, Moira Bellis, who was the head of Warner Brothers Records PR department. This is early 1977. And I sort of rang up and she just by default answered. Normally that would have been the job of her secretary. And 20 to the dozen, I'm Gary Crowley and we've started this fanzine and, you know, we want to interview all your bands and who have you got? And da, da, da. You know, she sort of said that she literally held it out there, you know, like like that. And, and, <laughs> and you know, who is this? Screaming down but the- she said, listen, you, when you ring up next time, you are to be put through to me. And I always did and I always got through to her and, and she's become a lifelong friend. So that's what I did, I saw that number of John's, the contact number, and decided to give it a whirl. And and Anne, Paul's mum, answered. And again... So this is their home phone number? This, this is the... the- this, office, is, this, this is, is the Mabry Estate <laughs> number. And she answered. And again, you know, I kind of had my sort of routine kind of perfected at that. I'm Gary Crowley and we love the jam and we're going to call it the modern world because they'd started doing that as a, as a new song. I thought better that one than London Traffic because that was another new song as well. So, yeah, we're going to call it the modern world. It sounds, you know, punky and, 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 and vibrant and, and all the rest of it. She was like, calm down, dear, calm down. And she said, hold on, hold on, Paul. Paul. Nah. <laughs> and then he came on and, and bless his cottons. What, what are you doing tomorrow? What are you doing tomorrow Tomorrow afternoon? Can you get up to um, Stratford Place? Can I? Yeah. So me and my mate, I think it was Mark Beach. We got the bus down and, um, you know, we got there early. And then Paul rocked up with his girlfriend at the time, Jill. Yeah, we were with him for about an hour, an hour and a half. And um, and you know what? He, he hasn't changed that much. I mean, he fascinated about what you were listening to and what, you know, your thoughts were and... and um, I mean, I remember, I remember he, he had a bag of reggae records. He'd, he'd been to, um, you know, one of the reggae shops in Soho or something. And uh, he was kind of sort of talking me through his um, his bag of records. But uh, yeah, I mean, I've got the cassette somewhere. And, um, you know, one day maybe I'll have the, uh, you know, the chutzpah to sort of play it to people. But if you can imagine, you know, <laughs> the squeaky 15 year old cave boy. Yeah, yeah <laughs> a very, very high pitched voice. <laughs> Hello, Paul. Yeah. So, yeah, what's your favourite colour? You realise that's how my final podcast is going to sound, right? <laughs> big fun, didn't, Paul. Big did, fun. Did, yeah, didn't stop me. Yeah. yeah. It's funny you say that because Bax on the who's here today, Bax on the podcast when I chatted with him, talks about Paul being like that now. One of the first things he'll ask new people he meets is kind of, you know, what you're listening to, what you're yeah. into. That's not changed over 45 years. No. And that's one of the things, Dan, that, that I've always, always admired. You know, he's a fan. I mean, he really is a, a fan and um, always eager to sort of tell you what he's listening to but equally what are you listening to what what do you like and um, you know a lot of people kind of lose that but that's something that he's always always kept and it's funny you know walking in here this afternoon you know having a little chat with um, you know Derek D'Souza this afternoon you know something else that he and the band as well have always been uh, that's always been important to them is that encouraging young people and and, and I think that's sort of something that he clearly still does mm. as far as um, you know artists is concerned you know with some of those Black Barn sessions it's um you know, something that's 
always been important. And that, that connection with the fans is so important as well. Right? Yeah. So it's, and, that's, and you're a young fan. You love this band. I just can't get my head around that. I mean, imagine bringing Ed Sheeran up and his mum answers and he goes, Ed, <laughs> it just doesn't, I mean, that's mental. Yeah, yeah. You probably have to get uh, through to a, a few people. But again, I mean, you know, that, that was the thing. And certainly being in the middle of London, I think, um, you know, I was very, very lucky. I had a little bit of chutzpah. I mean, I do sort of think of myself as being a bit shy, actually. And people sort of find that hard to believe. But, you know, when Joe Strummer's walking down the road, sort of in the opposite direction, what are you going to do? I'm not going to, you know, and you started a fanzine. Hello, this is my moment. I've got to grab this. So, um, so we did, you know, but um, yeah, we were very, very lucky with the fanzine. Um, you know, got to meet some amazing people and 1977 will always be a very, very special year, you know, for you me. You mentioned the jam live in that first gig in Battersea. Yes. You, from that point on, you saw the jam a lot. I did. I was really, really lucky because, um, you know, again, living in, in the centre of town, I got my first job sort of late summer 1978. I became an office boy in, in a record company. I decided that I wanted to work in, in music. I wrote to all the record companies, only two sort of wrote back. One was a record label called Red Records, who had offices on Wigmore Street, and they offered me a job. But Decker, um, who had offices on Great Marlborough Street. Now, Decker, of course, in the 1960s had, you know, the Stones and the Small Faces. In 1978, they were probably one of the uncoolest labels going. I mean, their adherence, acknowledgement of punk was Cox Sparrow and Slaughter and the Dogs, you know, could do better. But it was the best first ever job that I or anyone, you know, I think could have had because there was such a lovely, lovely bunch of people there. I was there for just under a year, slap bang in the middle of um, the West End and I'd come out and you'd be delivering packages and, you know, you'd bump into Paul or, you know, Boy George and Marilyn would be coming around the corner, you know, George dressed as Queen Bodicea or... Um, um, you know, Marilyn dressed as Marilyn and, you know, this stuff stays with you, you know. And uh, But the great thing was that I would have to go to a lot of the music papers and um, deliver records by Decker artists that they didn't want to review. The Smurfs or, um, you know, maybe a Camel album or, or, or something like that. But I got to meet the receptionist, the lovely people at the NME and Danny Baker had just been um, promoted to a full-time... Hold time. on, hold on. Danny Baker was the receptionist. He was the receptionist before me. Did through? Because he talks more than you. Well... <laughs> Well, he, he got promoted, Dan, and, and uh, there was a couple of lovely, lovely girls that, that I worked alongside, Fiona and Val. So this is 1979 now, and, and you know, this is the year of Two-Tone, and, you know, all these amazing bands coming out of Manchester and Sheffield and Bristol, and Adrian Thrills, who um, would be a great person for you to interview for this, Adrian would be bringing in a cool new band every week. Those first couple of jobs were absolutely amazing. And then again, through going out and going to a lot of gigs, I mentioned Moira a little bit earlier on, who was that PR lady at Warner Brothers. Cut a long story short, the Angelic Upstarts of a band called The Fixations were playing at the old Moonlight Club. I don't know if any of you used to go there, but I used to love that venue. I always remember that Angelic Upstarts gig because they kicked a pig's head into the um, into the crowd and the crowd were playing football with it. I always remember that. But Moira's husband, Clive, was there and Clive was this very, very cool, very stylish, very charismatic radio and TV promotions guy, a plugger, they call him. And it was his job to get the bands played on, you know, the radio and, and the TV. And his roster was absolutely impeccable. I mean, he had, you know, The Who and Elvis Costello, The Pretenders. He also published them. And I remember he gave me a lift home to literally just, just around the corner he called me up the next morning i was on the receptionist at the nme and he said uh, have you got a mate who might want to um come and work for me oh by the way he told me in the car on the way home that he'd just taken on the jam dennis mundy brought him in and he was the guy that broke them on radio one he was play for the very ones, very right? that's right yeah. that's right dan yeah that was the first record that the jam that the jam got played on daytime radio up until that time it had just been peely maybe a little bit of mike reed in in the evenings as well and i went oh, would you mean a friend oh, I'm interested. Well, well, yeah. he, said, he said, well, I didn't want to ask you. He said, you sounded really, really happy at the NME. So uh, he said, well, come over and see me then. He had a little office in um, in Floral Street. Paul Smith had literally just opened next door. I mean, this is the Covent Garden of the late 70s. So it was really grubby and, and um, it was great. I loved it then. And yeah, he, so he, he offered me the job. And um, and that's how it kind of started for me in, in a way really, Dan, because through being with Clive, you'd go out for lunches with producers and, 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 and things like that. Things were beginning 
to sort of relax. I mean, somebody with a strong regional accent at that time being on the radio was still quite a novelty. I mean, I don't know how you guys remember it. I mean, the only one I really remember before Danny started doing the London Weekend Show was Monty Modlin. It was quite an unusual thing, but there was a couple of people that were um, very supportive. One was a lovely fella called Jeff Griffin, who um, was the producer of In Concert, and he started using me for bits and pieces. And then I met this lovely guy called Tony Howe, who subsequently became the head of music at Capital Radio. And he rang up one day. Again, I was actually manning the phones that lunchtime. Lee, the receptionist, was um, was out. And I said, hold on, Tony, I'll put you through to, uh, to Clive. He said, no, I want to speak to you. Said, oh, okay, yeah. So he said, listen, do you want to come up and um, see me at Euston Tower uh, later on this evening? Yeah, I can do that. I can do that. So I went up to see him. And I mean, this is like far out stuff. He said, I think you could be a DJ. And I was like, what? Are you nuts? He said, no. He said, come in, come in a couple of times and, um, you know, we'll give it a go. And then we gave it a go. And literally about six weeks later, I had a Tuesday night program on That's Capital. Massive. It so really, this is, what, this is it, 1980? This is 82, the 82. beginning of 1982. Okay. Yeah. I'll tell you what, let's come back to that. Because obviously throughout this, the journey of the jam is, you know, you've seen them in 77, interviewing Paul right at the beginning. So this is the early Polydor first album. They're not yet topping the charts and suddenly. So as you go through, the, the live experience presumably gets busier, more raucous crowds, you know, growing, growing, growing yep. and stuff. But also you suddenly see these people that you've interviewed on top of the pops and on, on at the top of the charts, number, literally number one album, number one singles and stuff, right? Yeah. So as a fan, that must be hugely exciting to see like your band becoming massively popular. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, your band is the expression, really. I mean, um, you know, the Pistols in 1977 couldn't really play. The Jam were my band, followed very, very closely by The Clash. I mean, I absolutely adored The Clash. Got to see them many, many times. If you said to me, if you had to sort of choose... One or the other. Yeah, it, it, would, be, it would be a very, very difficult, because, you know, they both brought There's an audience things. of Jam fans here, though. Yeah. Well, I think they all know that I'm a fan. I, I think they all yeah, know that I'm a fan. But yeah, I mean, you know, both of them on their night were just, you know, um, I mean, absolutely spectacular. What was it like? So as a young man being in those things, and this is like, like you said earlier, it's like the first time really there's this this youth, this proper youth club culture yeah. where you're getting your bands for your age. What was it like being in those gigs? Take, take me there. Well, the first, I mean, I, I don't know what it's like for, for everybody else, but that first gig, I think, always stays with you, that first memory. And I can almost sort of see it like a film really unfolding. And it was Battersea Town Hall. You know, the boys were supporting. You know, we got there at six o'clock. I remember my dad winding me up saying, you better bring some cotton wool because you'll go deaf you will. <laughs> you know, it's going to be so loud. It's going to be so noisy. <laughs> so who walks in? Who walks no. in? So it's a very, very cool punk kick with cotton wool hanging out of both of his. Anyway, I quickly sort of uh, tore them out. But we got there at six o'clock outside Battersea Town Hall. It was early summer, the end of June. And I remember there was a rumour going around that some Teds were going to turn up from King's Road and there was going to be fisticuffs, a punch up. I got very, very excited. Not that I would have done anything because I would have been the first one underneath the car but it didn't happen but I remember you know the, the doors opening sort of rushing you know right down to the front and not long after you know the boys came on stage who I thought were absolutely fantastic as well in fact the first song that they did was Sick On You and I remember the hall was about two thirds full and I just remember you know they started we're gonna be we're gonna be sick on you I remember looking around and seeing my pals and seeing this sort of massive of pogoing bodies and just thinking oh my god this is I've arrived this is what it's all about they were great and then you know the anticipation builds for the Woking Wonders as I like to call them just remember them you know rushing out on stage and picking up those gleaming red and white Rick and Backer guitars Paul and Bruce and Rick of course at the back with the I think he was still wearing the shades then keeping that sort of steady beat and straight into art school I think that was the first song of the set that year 1977 I mean just the energy you know the energy the energy was just absolutely fantastic I mean it was uh, it was visceral it was um, you know it was just so vital just darting around the stage I mean you just didn't know where to look you know but for two guys essentially obviously you know, you know Paul and Bruce I mean like demented rabbits sort of you know <laughs> pogoing and running over there and da 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 and, and yeah I mean the songs I mean I knew the songs already because I'd had the album played that to death and, um, and and like I said a couple of new songs and yeah just you know kind of came out of there as I said, you know, that kind of feeling of wanting to kind of get involved. I think it's fair to say that that night probably changed my life, really. And am I right in thinking later on, so a few years later, you're introducing the jazz? I did a couple of things. Yeah, I mean, um, one time I got to in introduce them at the Golders Green Hippodrome for in concert. Uh, so that was kind of circa sound effects time. Right. And um, So you're looking out on these people 
ready anticipating the game you're you know seeing these faces that was a yeah. surreal moment yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was a surreal moment i remember paul dedicated boy about town to me um that night and i remember why is he dedicated no pretty greeny dedicated okay. to me and i remember saying to you know vaughn to lose it was my you know buddy and you know paul was very um fond of vaughn as well what does he mean by that Pretty green. What does he mean by that? I still haven't asked him that. The great thing about working for Clive, who was the band's promotions guy, was that, you know, you would get to go to the townhouse and kind of hear, you know, what was going to be the next single. And I've got a defining memory of being um, invited over with Clive and hearing Start for the first time, kind of reeling up after hearing that and um, lots of memories. And, um, you know, one of my fondest as well is travelling, occasionally travelling to see the band outside of London. So, um, you know, we would go up to Birmingham or you know Manchester. Newcastle was always was always fantastic. Glasgow as well. Glasgow had that edge. Yeah, that I mean, sounds pretty cool. amazing audience. But um, but the jam when they played Newcastle City Hall on the Sound Effects tour, Tyne Tees Television filmed that. They asked me to do a couple of little bits and pieces as far as you know interviews. So that was pretty special. There's also at this point you mentioned the radio, obviously, and we'll talk about the radio bug because what over 40 years as a broadcaster now, and it don't seem day too long <laughs> the youngest radio dj in the uk am i right in thinking whenever paul sees you that's what he says to you uh, yeah yeah and also the other Even thing now. he's got a memory like a freaking elephant he really really has because the very very first the very what was i thinking the very first publicity photo that um that, uh, that i had done i've got this little bow tie on it's kind of sort of circa kind of haircut 100 ab and he, he always brings that up you've still got that bow tie and um <laughs> So, um, but yeah, um, it's funny because when I started on the radio, Dan, the, um, the announcement was made, um, maybe just afterwards that the band was splitting up. Yeah. So the only jam single that I got to play on the radio when it came out was Beat Surrender, you know, so, um. And how did you know? Because you're mates with them at this point. So how did you feel? And did you get a like, heads up? I don't remember that. I think, um, I, I think it was kind of sort of kept very, very close, you know, to the immediate band and, 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 you know, very sort of close friends like Tufty. So no, I don't remember any sort of heads up maybe somebody might have said something just before the music press announced it and like everybody it was mixed emotions in a way really you know i mean obviously hold on they're the biggest band in the country i mean the only band at the time who i can remember who was sort of alongside them as far as popularity was probably the police if we're talking 1982 you know i mean um there's a lot of frowns in here yeah no but certainly as far as you know the size of the band they were absolutely enormous but um yeah so it was um you know an incredibly brave decision i can't think of you know many bands that have kind of gone out at the top like that but um i think that's why we sort of look back at it with such fondness because um it was never soiled in any way you know they were he was what 23 24 you know bruce was 24 25 bruce and rick were 24 25 so it was so fresh yeah, and, 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 yeah, and still so keep, vital. Yeah, I think you're yeah. rinsing it and it's not kind of gone on for another 20 years and we're all like... I mean, they oh, yeah, really did go out on, yeah. you know, really did go out on a high, you know. I mean, who are the other bands who, who have done that, um, you know, apart from the obvious ones? A very, very brave decision. Paul was always... And, and that was something that I think you sort of sensed, um, you know, very early on is that, um, you know, he was forward thinking and, you know, his heroes were John Paul, George and Ringo and the small faces. And it was never going to be about, you know, repeating something. It was going to be about, well, let's try this now and... Um, you know, I think that's why, you know, we're all still interested, you know, because he's still writing classic songs, I think. Yeah, I agree. And the thing is, I mean, the Star Council come around pretty soon after, really. I mean, if you think about it, it's not long to catch a breath and he's on to the next venture is moving forward. And Paul and Mick were really supportive of you and your radio stuff, weren't they? They were, yeah. Um, I mean, I saw probably a lot more of, um, of Paul round about that time because there was a little sort of gang of us in a way who lived in the center of town paolo and, and simon who was doing the artwork so we would sort of meet for um a drink every, every now and then and also you know socialize a little bit as well got some good memories of going to see i don't know brass construction at the venue in victoria but um you know i've always been a fan and, and i've always sort of remembered that you know paul doesn't live too far from from where i live but you know i don't see him too often you know maybe a cup of coffee or i mean it was a very surreal moment i don't know if you saw the picture dan about yeah, yeah, a month yeah, or so yeah, ago can i tell this story i don't know if you saw this photograph folks so basically i was meeting a mate of mine kev um kevin the cabbie as i like to call him and um we met in made a vow and and um anyway so, so we're getting a coffee and then glenn matlock sort of rocks up alongside oh can i join you yeah of course yeah yeah sit sit down so we're kind of sort of chatting away and i've got my back 
to the road and all of a sudden I get this tap on on the shoulder. Oh, I know that voice anywhere. Oh, hello, darling. How you doing? And I swing round and it's, it's Lulu. Oh, Lulu. <laughs> and it's Lulu. Oh, hello. How are you? Oh, good. Nice to see you. And I could see Glenn was very excited about about Lulu sort of being there. And um, and we started chatting. I asked her if she'd seen Summer of Soul because, you know, she loves soul music and, and she hadn't seen it. So we were talking about that. And I don't know, we started talking about some of the people that lived in the area. And she said something about Paul and she said, yeah, I don't I don't think that, um, you know, Paul was particularly a, a fan of mine. I'm sorry if you're, if you're Scottish. I apologise for my accent. It's the best I can do, I'm afraid. It sounds like Mrs. Doubtfire. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that. And, and she said, I don't think Paul was particularly a fan of mine because of my politics in the 80s. And I went, well, you can talk about it to him because he's coming up the road. And then he's coming in the opposite direction. And they're all there on that corner and I just thought I've got to take a photograph this is quite a surreal moment this and I said look would you mind everyone if I took a, a photograph and, and this didn't come out afterwards Dan but Glenn sort of ambled off Lulu ambled off and literally me Paul and Kevin were sat there you know chatting away and then Chrissy Hyde came round the corner I mean talk about Stella Street <laughs> it was uh it was quite a surreal moment but um but yeah, so um Imagine that as a super group though, man. It was it was very, very bizarre. Very bizarre. Yeah, quickly went viral that 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 photograph. There are a few little connections during this time that I wanted to talk about with radio stuff. So there's I mean, how did you feel about the style council for out of out the gate in terms of that new material? Because we have a run of incredible singles, we have Cafe Blur. He's really mixing it up. It's so different every time. You don't really you couldn't pigeonhole them at all. No. But you were clearly a fan as well, right? Yeah, I mean I think that um, you know, one of the great things about the last couple of years was being asked asked by um, Liam Mark to do the bulk of the interviews for the uh, the Style Council Long at Summers documentary. Kind of going back and, and, and listening to that stuff and, and, and I suppose in a way kind of reappraising it. I thought that the early 80s was a very, very exciting time because of course when you think about punk, it was about going to gigs and um, you know, fast forward to about 1980, 1981 you know, the dance floor became very, very important. And it wasn't so much about going to gigs as well. It was, you know, records and could you dance to it? Um, I think, you know, the Style Council, like, you know, a lot of those sort of great post-punk, pop-funk bands, if you like, um, you know, were very much a part of that. The thing that, that really came across, um, you know, right at the beginning doing those interviews was that, um, you know, this band, it was going to be about the songs, really, and who was going to be right for that specific song. Mm, yeah, it was so, so fluid, um, wasn't it? Different members, yeah. the honorary councillors that we hear so much Yeah, about. I mean, I think it's either Mick or Paul jokes about it in the document. You know, we were doing this, you know, 30 years before Massive Attack, but yeah, and you yeah, thought, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, thinking back to those final gigs, Dan, of the jams, you know, Brighton and Guildford, it was very, very blokey. Brighton especially. I remember coming away from Brighton and, and, and feeling a little bit depressed about it, really, because it was like a football crowd in a way, really. Um, you know, there, there was a dance troupe who who um, went on. They I don't booed, know. Then they get like booed off. Yeah. Something. Well, I was one of that dance troupe as well. And on, <laughs> that, honestly, I saw my I, understand. <laughs> I saw I saw my life flash before my eyes um, that evening. But the nice thing about um, the Style Council, I think, was that um, you know there was kind of um, a sort of a loose a kind of softening in a way and, and in actual fact you know thinking back to some of those early style council shows there were a lot more girls there as well and it was more you know like a 50 50 audience the softer but still i mean that, that band at times is so funky i mean the songs stack up as well so yeah and great. angry yeah, uh, yeah, as yeah, well yeah, you know and um you know i think that's you know, talking about him, you know, that that's what makes him, you know, such a, a great sort of songwriter, like like all the best ones, you know, he can do it all yeah. in a way, really. You know, if you want the rousing, you know, he can do that. And, and, and you know, but if you want, you know, something sort of soft and otherworldly, like Gravity, which is like one of my all-time favourite songs or, or you know, yeah. Village or, or something, I mean, it's just... You know. There are a couple of things I wanted to talk to you about, certainly with the Style Council. So one was our favourite shop. If you, I don't know if you got the cassette. If you had the cassette, there was this little bit with you doing one well, little bit. It was like half an hour, forty-five minutes. Yes, of you interviewing them about the songs and chatting with them throughout. So how did that come about? Well, I think that cassette at that time w w was kind of king in a way, really, wasn't it? It was uh, a way that a lot of people did listen to their music. So um, yeah, the idea was, um, you know, mooted. Oh, would you be up for um, for interviewing us for that? So um, dutifully 
trotted off down to the studios, Stanhope Place. Yeah, I think that was quite a, a it's a, nice, but quite be- a coherent one in yeah. a way, really. Because wow, the there's been a few other ask. interviews that haven't been as uh, coherent as that as well. There was one where I'll tell you the Stanley Road story if you like. Oh, go on. <laughs> well, go on. I was going to ask you. So there was a Frosty interview around that time in 1985, I think. With well, well, there was yeah, that there was one when him and Mick came in, and um, I don't know, it was just very, very in, and and I don't think anybody would have got it really, and um, you know, let's just say that they were playing up and um yeah that was funny because um i remember we all sort of met for a coffee afterwards and uh i think he knew that i was pissed off and he, he was sort of mulling this over and it was almost like that scene in um the bitterest pill video when he slams his hand down on the um the table and the cups go flying out. i didn't fucking like you so much crowley i'd knock your head off and then he sort of like flounced out of the coffee shop i was like what was that all about where did that come from but yeah great days great days yeah bless him he, he called up after but, but yeah sorry Nobly it was a little bit out of order there but uh, what does yeah. he call you? Nobly GC the Nobly Knee yeah yeah that was my <laughs> alter ego sort of rap name um, sort of 82 so it was all yeah right Nobly yeah so um, a Stanley Rose story then oh no 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 that was I think he'd um, been out and had a few sherbets before the show and of course you know Wildwood had gone through the roof and, and the anticipation yeah. for this Paul was going to come in and do a track by track exclusive interview and then he walks into the studio and says let's keep the chat down to a minimum and just play the music and I'm like what are you nuts yeah I think we got away with it it's interesting because I think back in the day I think that um you know being interviewed wasn't something that he particularly enjoyed that that's something that now you know the last 20 30 years I think he he enjoys it he's a lot more relaxed about it now whereas um you know I think back in the day it was like you know the music should do the talking really and um you know so um well yeah yeah. I wouldn't have wanted to do this podcast back and it seemed like he was terrifying Yes. Because you watch some of them and he absolutely destroys the interview. I mean, I don't think he ever did that with you. Yes. Well, (laughs) (laughs) what's your definition of destroy? (laughs) Well, some of them, I would have been like a quivering wreck in the corner, you know. Yeah. He could be tricky. He could be, yeah, he's got teeth, but um, yeah. At the end of last year, Chris Bostock was on the podcast, Joe Boxer's honorary counsellor, and he talked about these PAs, these club nights that you did. Yeah, one of the first things, actually, somebody reminded me about this on um, social media a week or so ago, Dan, that there was a Respond Under 18s event that happened at the um, the Drill Hall just off Gower Street in Covent Garden. Vaughan was DJ and I was DJ and I think Paul was DJ and I think maybe the questions and Tracy were playing live. And I think the idea was, was that, you know, to try and get a younger audience into these bands as well, you know, rather than um, going through the um, tried and soiled music presser of the time so it was I guess an attempt to sort of try and get to the audience and hopefully the idea being that you know that there might be more but there wasn't but I thought that was a great idea and and then you know once I, I was DJing I was on there I was starting to be offered to do DJ stints and, and club nights and things like that then I got offered this um, this one in particular which was out in South Harrow called Bogarts we were given Tuesday nights which was the sort of dead night of the week really you know we built it up it was a really special vibe for a couple of years um it was a really really young crowd as well it was kind of late teens I don't think the the eldest person in there would have been 22 or 23 i mean i was 1920 and we started getting bands along to kind of come and do pas paul and mick came and do one which was kind of pretty unheard of really i mean they sort of i've got the photos i mean nobody had cameras then so none of this stuff sadly hasn't been sort yeah. of captured but it was a really special vibe you know because george and andrew from wham live around the corner so they would kind of swing by you know and the bananas would come along and i always remember we had the rocksteady crew came and did a pa for um hey you rocksteady crew and they had their dancers and their dj as well scratching and i'd never seen that up close before yeah. i mean this is 82 83 that was pretty far you know know kind of far out stuff what to a backing track or is it because presumably they're not bringing all the instruments and everything i think i think that they did my memory is that they did long hot summer which was um you know which was a big record for us at the club and yeah i mean there are photos where they're sort of drunkenly sort of um you know ricocheting around around the stage but i always remember i always remember him saying to me that night this is our audience you know this is the audience that that we want because it was that kind of mix of you know girls and boys and um it was a young up for it crowd 
as well. Well, we'll come back to the Star Council because I think one thing as a radio presenter that always I always loved, particularly the early 90s when Weller was coming back as a solo artist, was those radio sessions. And there were some really special ones. And it seemed to me he would just pop into like radio shows with an acoustic guitar, nothing else, and just play sometimes covers like things like Black Sheep Boy and stuff like that. These things would then become bootlegs and you'd be yes. sharing with your mates and stuff. And there was a couple of yours that were on there. That were, so That must have been so special to have this guy who, yes, he's your mate, but also you're a fan of his music. He's back on top and he's playing sessions on your radio show. Well, I was on um, I was on GLR at that time, which was a great radio station where, um, you know, Danny the, Baker and Chris Danny, Evans, Chris, Evans Chris Morris. Yeah. And I mean, you know, the list goes on and on. Some amazing people um, on the station and it was slap bang in the middle of the West End. It was on, you know, Maribyrn High Street. And um, a lot of the people that worked there were really, really cool as well. My producer, who remains a very, very good friend, is a guy called um, Jim Lahat. Jim got on very well with Paul and, and the band. And, um, you know, like anything, you know, if you feel comfortable and, you know, the people are nice and they're welcoming, you want to go back, you know, you want to go and do it again. And I think, you know, Jim had sort of, um, you know, made it known that he was kind of receptive to any ideas. Paul and, and Paolo at that time, I think, did a radio show for a while, didn't really? they? Radio did Woken. They? Radio. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I've got cassettes of that. I mean, I think they recorded about four episodes of that. I think, you know, Ocean Colour Scene swung by and, and, and Noel and other people as well, maybe the Chemical Brothers. So, yeah, it was um, it was a lovely atmosphere and um, the studios were great. You know, the equipment was kind of old school as well, which I think appealed to everybody. It was very kind of laid back. You know, anything sort of went. It must be really special to hear those songs for the first time live as well, because sometimes they'd rock up and he'd play songs that clearly weren't finished either. They were like work in progress and you're hearing them for the first time. Yeah, I mean, um, never take that for granted I, I certainly don't it's funny because mark's in my my, my eyeline here and, and and i've got a memory of um going down to the studio and hearing some bits and pieces that you know made it onto true meanings and i think you know me and him on on the train going back from ripley up to waterloo it was like I mean, how, how lucky are we you know i mean to sort of be sat there with the man with the band you know getting to kind of hear this stuff it's wow. it's pretty uh pretty far out stuff a few really. people on the podcast have mentioned listening listening parties as well so rhoda dakar mentioned listening party i think max beasley mentioned so when an album's finished generally you'll get presumably all your mates yes but it's not like a load of critics or people who are going to review it necessarily, but it's just, yeah, it, come come round, I want to play you the new album. You get it on the big speakers at Blackburn, I'm guessing. Yes. Yeah? Yes. You've I mean, had I'm, that experience? I'm not sure whether I've actually been to a <laughs> listening party, so uh, I, don't know I, I, don't, I don't know whether I've upset somebody, but um, I mean, I have changed my number recently, but um, but no, I mean, I've, I've only been a couple of times, as I said, I mean, the True Meanings one, you know, kind of sticks out just to, um, you know, to kind of be there sort of hearing it, you know, loud and... You know, you've got the person who's kind of, well, the band, as well as, you know, Charles and, and, and you know, those guys mm. sort of around you. It, it's pretty amazing. 45 years on from that first album now, and we're still smashing out of the park. I think we're in the sixth decade of number one albums. Um, he's just had two number one albums off on the trot on Sunset, Fat Pop. He's so prolific. I thought about this. I mean, you know, we were talking about 1977 and that original sort of wave of, of bands. And I'm trying to sort of think of someone else who came out of the traps when the jam did, when Paul did, who, who still has that prolific work ethic. You know, I, I can't, maybe Elvis Costello, but there's been some big gaps with, with Elvis. And Elvis is older than Paul as well, isn't he? By a couple of years, I think. His sort of work ethic is, is absolutely amazing. And, um, but the quality control is still, you know, I mean, listening to the last album and Shades of Blue or oh, what's the other song that I love? The, um, the one with the girl from the Mysterines. Is it oh, true? true? You know, it's like that quality is still there. And, um, there's not many that you can sort of say that about, I think, really. You know, I can't really think of a time, really. I'm not sure if I've admitted in front of this lot, but, um, <laughs> You know, when the quality control is kind of, is kind of, which album do you think was crap, Gary? Uh, <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> Let me think about that and I'll get back to you for part two. No, but seriously, I don't think. He wouldn't let it. The, um, the way that he sort of test himself, you know, it, that wouldn't happen. I don't think really. And still experimenting, still pushing forward, still yeah. trying new things. Even you think like a few years back off the back of True Meanings, we had other aspects and the Royal Festival Hall gigs. It's yes. Like, 
for the first time, like playing properly with a full orchestra. That was amazing. Yes. Yeah. 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 We went to that and that was beautiful. That was a lovely evening and great to hear those songs and a lot of those old songs, you know, done in that way. So, yeah. Hey, look, I feel like we've only scratched the surface here. So we're going to need a part two on this, definitely. But I've got two final questions for you. Okay. Yes. On the podcast. Uh, You're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. Yes, because I'm a fan of the podcast. I knew that this one was coming and um, (laughs) we should go around the room, actually, and ask every Everybody, everybody, the answer to this, because, you know, I mean, obviously I can't speak for you, but it does change all the time. And I've really given this some, some sort of serious thought. I mean, gravity, I think is, is, is just one of the most beautiful, beautiful songs. I, I, I absolutely love that. I mean, long hot summer takes me back to, um, you know, a holiday in 1983 and having a, a cassette of that EP. I think it was the first time that I'd ever gone to Spain and we played that for, you know, 10 days, that EP. So, um, you know, long hot summer. Summer is a favourite, but um, I'm going to go with um, Life from a Window and... Oh, sharp intake of breath. And the reason, the reason why I've gone with Life from a Window is because I just love the dreamlike quality of it. I think it's a great, great song. I mean, I loved the album at the time when I got my hands on it. This is the modern world I'm talking about. But I don't know. I just love that kind of sort of dreamlike quality you know that kind of metaphor for like uh, for life if you like in a way you know we've not really talked about him as a wordsmith somebody who can write l- lyrics with meaning yes he's such a bit with the style council i guess with the pol- political stuff but the way he uses words to connect with us uh, these audiences yes yeah i mean i'm trying to think of the opening line now to um <laughs> live from yeah i'm sitting on a hill dub you know up here it don't seem nice that's okay i love that song and, and i just love that kind of um dreamlike vibe to it so today live from a window would be my answer but tomorrow it would be yeah. it would be something i mean village when i heard village I, I was just like wow that's a classic for my money you know just absolutely you know a stone cold classic yeah okay final question so purpose of this podcast is to talk to amazing people like yourselves these incredible careers these connections with paul weller and I, as i say i think i feel like we've only dug into a few of them so we need to record another bit for the rest of it purpose of this podcast really is for me and the purpose of this live show folks i'll be honest with you is to get that interview with paul weller that i never managed during my radio career nowhere near as successful as yours but i don't know if you remember the dan jennings breakfast show on Richard <laughs> fm sponsored by sun silk no sun silk um, sun silk they wouldn't yeah. sponsor me <laughs> <laughs> yeah purpose is to get that interview with paul if it happens what should i ask him? oh god Jesus, right. Um, oh, fucking Nora. Um, sorry, did I say that? Um, oh, God, that's a good question. Um, Is there something you'd like to know but can't ask him as a mate or something like that? That's a good question as well. Um, if he had to, I mean, because he's so prolific, if he had to choose one album out of everything where he feels that he really, really got it right, what would that album be for him? I was listening to um, to 22 Dreams a couple of weeks ago, and that's one of my favourite albums. You know, I mean, I always remember hearing that for the first few times and just thinking where it goes, you know, that kind of mix of, of kind of, you know, vibes of, of themes and, and music. It, you know, it's like a jukebox in a way, really. I love that album. So um, that would be my question. If he had to, you know, there's out of all of the stuff that, that he's done with everybody, what's the one that he would be most sort of proud of if you had to keep one love it love it love it right we've got time for two questions i think from this lovely audience here Are they awake yes yeah he's got a good memory that one um yeah yeah uh, <laughs> I, when you when you first said that i had assumed that it was some punk band at the time yes and then it was as you then and then i was like yeah oh, no, actually, you group. mean the actual stuff. yes when i when i was the office boy tufty knows when i was the office boy at decca records i mean as i said you know despite it being the best first job that, that anyone could have asked for such a lovely amazing group of people yeah the only success that they were having was with the smurfs and um i remember i took father abraham once down to um a cab carrying the um the the outfits because um they were taking him over to um top of the pops but um <laughs> yeah in in answer to your question we're just good friends the blue shirt and the lovely pocket handkerchief oh lovely the lovely thing about this is that and this you know this man the music the bands that he's 
been in, you know, bringing us all together is that, you know, Alex and Jerry are, are sort of friends and Stuart's here as well. You know, people that I've kind of got to know through social media and, and, and the radio show. So it's so lovely to kind of put a face to um, both of you. Luther Vandross fans, I think. Yeah. Jerry, I'll have to introduce you to my sister because she <laughs> loves a bit of Luther as well. But anyway. Has Paul forgiven you for suggesting come to Milton? Oh, that's a oh, good question. That's a great question. So has Paul forgiven you? They're suggesting come to Milton Keynes as a single. This has come back to haunt me. I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love that track. I mean, I love that album. I mean, it's my, um, my favorite style council album. I love confessions though, as well. I think confessions is a fantastic album. And again, I love the kind of moods and, um, different feel of, of that album, but I loved, um, I mean, I'm struggling now. Oh, my voice is going up. I love come to Milton Keynes, but I thought. You know, I said to, I can remember saying to him, this is your penny lane. This is going to be it. Honestly, this is going to be. <laughs> and it only got to the dizzy heights of something like, um, 23. And then I remember after it started going down, it's like, oh, fucking time I listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> I just love the kind of effortless feel to that. But uh, yeah, that was funny. It's not fucking time I listen to you. Gary, this has been fabulous. Thanks so much for joining me, man. Gary Thanks, Crowley. Everyone. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Can I just say something very, very quickly? Honestly, absolutely nailed it. And, and what a fantastic idea as well. It really, really is. And, and again, you know, without sort of getting too sort of, um, uh, you know, away with the fairies and stuff, but, you know, the power of music and the way that this fellow who we've been talking about, um, you know, his music has sort of touched the lives of so many of us and continues to do so. That's kind of pretty special. And, you know, boy, do we need it in these dark and, and troubled times as well. Well done, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bless you. Ladies and gentlemen, please thank you. Gary Crowley. Right, we're going to... Ladies and gentlemen, we're going we're gonna to put some tape in the machine now and do it properly, all right? So that was the run-through. Well, there you go. That was so special. Gary Crowley, live from the Cockpit Theatre in London, recorded just a few weeks ago. Another brilliant, brilliant guest. And I barely think we even scraped the surface on his Weller story. So there needs to be a part two at some time, right? Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please make sure you share, share and share on your social media channels. Don't forget to give us a follow on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And I'd love it if you could give us a five-star review as well. It all helps us to find new listeners to the show. Next up on the podcast, our second episode recorded at the cockpit, Tufty. Steve Tufty Carver, one of Paul's very best friends from the past 45 years, joins us on the podcast next. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.